to episode 27 of the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. On today's show, we're talking about what it takes to make a living as an artist. My guests are Lilla Rogers and Lisa Congdon. Lilla Rogers steers the ship at Lilla Rogers Studio, a visionary art agency that represents some of the most sought-after artists in the world. The studio has licensed their artwork on a huge variety of products, from bathing suits to teacups, piggy banks to wall decor. The studio's client list includes Crate and Barrel, Pier One, Land of Nod, Chronicle, The New York Times, Moda, Blue Q, Paper Chase, and hundreds more. An accomplished illustrator, painter, author, and teacher, Lilla has been in the business for over three decades. Most recently, she offers wildly popular e-courses and the extraordinary annual Global Talent Search. You can find out more about Lilla on her site, lillarogers.com. Lilla, welcome. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here, Abby. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm excited to talk with you. And my second guest is Lisa Congdon. Lisa first started making art as a hobby in 2001 and five years later began showing and selling her work. Today, Lisa makes a full-time living as an illustrator and fine artist. Known for her colorful and intricate paintings, drawings, and pattern designs, Lisa works for clients around the world, including the Museum of Modern Art, Martha Stewart Living, General Mills, and Simon & Schuster, among many others. Her projects range from book, magazine, product, and stationery illustration to wallpaper and fabric design. She's exhibited her work throughout the country, including shows at the Contemporary Jewish Museum and the Bedford Gallery. She's the author of Art, Inc., Whatever You Are, Be a Good One, 20 Ways to Draw a Tulip, and A Collection a Day. Lisa keeps a popular daily blog about her life, work, and inspirations called Today is Going to be Awesome. She lives in Oakland, California with her wife and animals. Lisa Congdon, welcome. Thank you for having me. So Lisa and Lilla, you both know each other very well because Lilla, you've been Lisa's agent since 2008. So it's great to be able to talk to both of you together about what it's like to really make a living selling your art. Um, So we're going to start by hearing just a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got where you are now. So Lilla, you began your career as an illustrator, um, which you pursued for 10 years with an impressive roster of clients yourself. So what was it like to be an illustrator in the 1980s? Well, I remember being really scared and really excited and really willful. Um, I, I went to art school in California, and I knew I had to move to New York because this was, this is how old I am, before faxes. <laughs> there was FedEx, but there weren't faxes, or there was no Internet, there were no emails. So you had to actually go to New York where all of publishing and advertising was, which were the two big markets buying really great art. And they were also buying the most sophisticated and interesting and edgy work. So it was the place to be. And I went. And um, it was really scary in the beginning, and but then things got better and better. So um, yeah, that's how it started. And do you remember who were some of your very first clients, what some of your very first jobs were like? I do. I was in San Francisco. Um, I was still getting my MFA at the Academy, just finishing up the Academy of Art in San Francisco. And I was on Powell Street, and I had just found out that New York Magazine called me for a job, my first job. And I was really, 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 really happy because they were buying um, people like 
Milton Glaser and Seymour Quast and Pushpin Graphic people, if the old folks listening to this know who they are. And so I was really happy, and I remember feeling like Mary Tyler Moore. I just wanted to walk down the street and throw up my hat and tell everybody I got this really great job. So that was one of the first. And um, even though I had just gobs of insecurity, which is natural to feel when you're doing something like this, to those of you out there feeling insecure, it's normal. Um, I figured that if I could get work from them, then possibly that set a taste level bar. So maybe I might have a chance at making it in the biz. Mm-hmm. That was your first sort of seal of approval, maybe. Yes, in that field. Yeah, and that's so important. So how did you make the shift? So you moved to New York, and then and then you moved to Massachusetts, I think. And so how did you make the shift to becoming an agent? Um, well, I had always taught, always, 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 all, in every kind of different situation. And I still love that as much, maybe more, than making art. Well, it's tied. So I... When I moved up, I, so I'm in New York, I'm living, I have my studio downtown in NoHo, I'm wearing lots of black, I have cool <laughs> friends, I'm, you know, super cool, life is great, and then I fall in love, and my dear husband, an ER doctor, he got a job in Boston, so um, I had to decide if I wanted to be with this guy, I had to move to Boston, and I did. But when I got here, I felt sort of a void. You know, it wasn't the same art scene for sure. And I thought one way to rectify that was to start teaching classes in my studio, which I did. And over time, short, long story short, is that over a couple of years or so, I was working with a smaller group of really extraordinarily talented illustrators. And one day they said, I said, you're done. You're great. I, you're ready. You send your work out there. And one of them said, Lilla, why don't you be our agent? And it was, you know, there are these times in your life where you're just hit by lightning and it's not what you planned or expected. I built this amazing business. I had agents in Paris, New York, and Tokyo. I was getting really exciting jobs. Um, but I love the idea of uh, a bigger picture, sort of producing rather than just um, taking the job and mentoring. And I love teaching and helping creatives succeed. I re- that's like my thing. So that's how it started. So yeah, one of the things that struck me when I was getting ready for this interview was that all three of us were teachers. Um, wow. So yeah, so I was a middle school history teacher and Lilla, you were a middle school art teacher. Yep. And Lisa, you taught elementary school. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that, Lisa. Yeah. Did you te- it was fourth grade? Well, I taught all, I actually, the, the grade that I taught the most was uh, first grade. First. Yeah. Okay. I taught for seven years, and then um, I went to work for an education nonprofit for another um, eight. So that was like my first career was in education. Yeah, and it's so interesting because, you know, all of these years later, I do feel like, you know, um, some of that... I, 
sort of the conceptual part of teaching around, you know, passing on information and seeing the potential in other people. Um, it comes through in the books that you're writing and the things that you're working on now in some way, even though, you know, it's a totally different career, but it's, it does come through in certain ways. I totally agree with that. And it's about giving and helping, which let's face it is, is so rewarding. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, so Lisa, um, you and I are, I would, I would say old internet friends, um, because you were one of the first people that I connected with when I first started blogging and first got online in 2005. And I remember so clearly when you began making drawings, like the very first ones that you were posting and you had your very first show. So describe what it was like for you in those early days when you first realized that maybe you could be an artist. Well, yeah, I, it was a total hobby for me originally. Um, I actually had never in my life probably since, I mean, maybe once or twice, um, but really not since seventh grade picked up a paintbrush or a pen. I didn't consider myself to be artistic at all. Um, it wasn't something that I had ever considered doing, um, even as a hobby. Um, and about 2001, I, um, broke up a relationship that I had been in for, um, almost 10 years. And I had a lot of time on my hands and I wanted to do something to sort of brighten my life up a little bit. And, um, so I took a, I took an art class and, um, with my brother actually, (laughs) which was interesting. And he never took another art class after that, but, um, I got hooked. It was a painting class. So fast forward to about 2005 at that point, I had just been painting and drawing and making collage and doing a lot of sewing, which is one of the ways that Abby and I connected. Yeah. Um, you were making some birds and I, I still was, have the bird that you made right. for me. <laughs> lots of, um, sort of, uh, modern, um, pillows, uh, quilted pillows. So, mm-hmm. right. um, anyway, uh, I started a blog and, um, that's how I met Abby and probably like 150 to 250 friends that I have today. Um, back on Flickr and, um, and when I was originally blogging through Blogger and again, you know, as you know, Lilla was saying, you know, in the 1980s, there was no internet. Well, there was internet when I started making art, but it was very different than it even is today. I mean, so much has changed even in the last 10 years. So back then, you know, quote, social media was Flickr and people commenting on each other's blogs. And it's, and it was still pretty, pretty, uh, primitive compared to, you know, what, what we use now. And, but, and the community was a lot smaller because not as many people were using it. So those of us who were sort of met and became friends and, and started following each other's work. And I was posting a lot of what I was making. And again, I had no aspirations to sell any of it originally. I was just having fun outside of my regular job. And at that point I had been making stuff pretty religiously since the early two thousands. And then, you know, of course within a year of starting to post images of my work, I was getting contacted. The first place to contact me was, um, Christian, uh, Rask who owns Schmancy in Seattle. And, you know, she was like, Oh, I want you to have a show here. And I was like, this was in 2005. And I was like, what? I'm not an artist. You know, I don't have shows. What are you talking about? You know, this is just my hobby. 
and I had never sold anything before. I mean, maybe, maybe I had sold like a bird that I had made out of fabric or something to somebody, to some friend, but that was really it. And, um, I remember it was really like one of the most exciting days of my life. I remember sitting in my office and, um, getting that email from her and being like, yes. And the year, uh, the, the show wasn't going to be for like another nine months, which, which I felt grateful for. Cause I had a lot of work to do. So that's sort of when I started making my first drawings, at that point I wasn't painting. I was just making drawings and collage. And, um, I was painting, but I wasn't making, you know, didn't make any paintings for that show. And I did some sewing and, and then uh, more stores and even a couple of galleries started contacting me. And then things just started happening. But again, I was like, I never imagined this could be my career at first. I was just, you know, making stuff as a hobby, selling it and showing it on the side, making a little bit of extra income, not much. And, um, then fast forward, you know, a few years later and, um, I got my first illustration job through Chronicle books and shortly thereafter through Poketo, which is a Los Angeles based company. And my friend suggested to me that maybe I should get into illustration because it might be more lucrative than trying to be a fine artist or at least more consistent. And, uh, she also suggested that I look for an agent and I was like, I barely, my portfolio is so small. Like I barely have anything in it. And, um, I got really lucky. I, I emailed <laughs> Lilla. I sort of worked on my portfolio a little bit and emailed Lilla. And I mean, my, I, I, you know, I think that I, I didn't really have, I think the sort of caliber of work that, um, that she looks for now when she's taking on new artists. Um, and, but she sort of saw something in me, I think. I'm curious what you saw in Lisa's work because she's yeah. saying that, you know, she came to you really as a almost sort of in the beginning stages. She, you know, didn't already have a developed, really developed portfolio or mm-hmm. uh, a lot to show you, but there was something that you saw. So what did you see in Lisa? Well, it was really interesting. I had known of her. There was a magazine. Does anyone remember Adorn magazine? Sure. And Lisa was in there, and that sort of just captivated me, the little piece on her, and the it was a, um, wasn't it a quilted pillow? No, it was actually a bag. They commissioned me to make a bag out of some, um, some, some, some fabric, um, some quilting fabric, and, um, and I'd never made a bag before. I mean, it was like, it was in the same design as I would do pillows, but I was a little nervous well, about it. The interesting thing is, uh, so I'd seen Lisa's work in Adorn, and then, and maybe, maybe the Chronicle, uh, oh, I know, then at my local shop, I saw your Paquetto wallet and loved it. And, you know, what it was is, maybe she didn't have a body of work, but she had a really cool mind and eye and aesthetic, and that's gold. You know, I knew that with us getting her jobs, she would obviously create more pieces over time. That's almost the easy part. But you can't make somebody have a cool mind, a vision, a sense of cultural trend and hipness and all that. And she had that, and I loved it. And I was thrilled when she sent me the uh, the email. So um, that's... A cool story, I think. Don't you think, Lisa? 
I think so too. And I think that, you know, it just shows that Lilla, like my portfolio was so small and I was starting to get some press and things like that. Not necessarily from my artwork. A lot of it was for the stuff I was sewing, but that she sort of could see that I had potential and, mm-hmm. um, and she took a risk. I mean, Lilla has, you know, eight years later, global talent searches for artists because so many people want to work with her. So I feel very, very lucky that I, that I, um, developed this relationship with her when I, in a, at a time when the internet was a different place and when even the world for illustrators was a different place. I mean, it's changed so much even in the last eight years and, um, or six years, I should say that I've been with her. Um, and I want to say too, that what was really helpful for me in the beginning um, was that, you know, I was so green. I hadn't gone to school for illustration or even art. I didn't know how to sketch. I didn't know so many of the things that I do every day now that I basically, you know, and Lilla mentored me so much in the beginning. She saw the potential, but it wasn't like she took me on and then left me out to dry. She said, okay, now I'm going to help you understand the world of illustration and how it works. We talked about trends. I practiced, you know, making work that would fit into different, it's sort of like she gave me similar assignments that she might give her (laughs) students in her, the classes that she teaches now. And those were so helpful. And some of them led to things and some of them didn't. Some of them made me realize this isn't the work I want to do at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember that time because I remember when you first started making repeat patterns um, like up until, you know, up until I feel like you, when you started working with Lilla, repeat patterns weren't sort of something that you were focusing on. And no, then, I, and then I, we started to see some coming up, like in order to have a real illustration portfolio, you're going to need to show that you can make this kind of repeat pattern. And you were experimenting with them and sort of helping yourself to learn to do them. Right. And you know what, you can be an illustrator and not make repeat patterns for sure. But I, Lilla asked me, you know, what kind of work do you want to do? And I told her, and she said, well, if you want to get into the gift market or if you want to get into home decor, you, you need to learn how to make repeats. So, um, in some ways I feel like I'm still learning how to make repeats. It's like a <laughs> lifelong journey to always make them better and better. And I look back at the ones I was making then and I, I sort of can't even look at them anymore, but, <laughs> but, the, but the point is that, you know, Lilla was really great in helping me sort of launch and build my career. And, um, and now I'm way more independent. We talk now when we talk, we're talking more about like which opportunities I should take or, or not take or sort of what the direct, the next direction that I'm going in. But in the beginning, there was a lot of, um, a lot of mentoring happening around the kind of work I was making and figure that out. Lisa was a great advocate for herself in that way and took advantage of the opportunity to, she would regularly schedule phone calls with me and ask good questions and think about what she wanted to do. And you know, any, any time you do have, if you, if artists out there have an agent or a mentor of some kind, it's important to use that and grow from that and learn as much as you can from others while you still maintain, as Lisa said, she found out, mm, I, I tried this, not really my thing, but you can't know unless you try all kinds of different things. It, it is a, uh, art making an art and an art career is a process of 
binary, like don't like this, do like this, don't like that, want to do more of that, and so forth. Yeah, and I think persistence plays a huge role here. Would you agree that, I mean... I feel like it's one thing to have some good ideas and as Lila, as you said, a good brain and an ability to sort of see, um, and, you know, an aesthetic and make some work, but it's another thing to, to send, you know, email to an agent, to secure an agent, to ask for help, to continually make and persist and, um, you know, fight through the rejection and the frustration and um, going down avenues that then later didn't feel right, et cetera. So Lisa, do you feel like persistence has played a role for you? Yeah, I got, I, I don't use that word very often, although it's a great one. I use like discipline mm-hmm. and um, perseverance too, because of one thing that you mentioned earlier when Lilla was talking about the beginning of her career is this whole idea of self-doubt and it rears its ugly head constantly. And I think you know, I've come to learn over the years that even artists who've gone through traditional channels and have, you know, very prestigious careers still, you know, deal with this idea of the imposter syndrome, like I don't deserve to be here or, you know, my work isn't good enough. And I feel like it's particularly true for writers and artists that we, you know, our work is very subjective. Um, the value of our work is, um, is in relationship to, to what other people think of it or what the value that other people place on it, which can which can really generate a lot of feelings of vulnerability and insecurity um, on a daily basis if you allow them to. And sort of, you know, not only did I had to, like, be disciplined about really working hard to make my portfolio better and, you know, and, and expand it in ways that um, that were out of my comfort zone and all of those things, but I had to, I also had to persevere um, through self-doubt and and all of the voices in my head telling me that other people, you know, their their work was better or their their chances for success were greater or I was too old. I mean, I didn't even pick up a paintbrush till I was thirty one years old. So by the time I was working with Lilla, I was I was forty, you know. Um, and so, you know, I was I was uh, I was a grandma compared to a lot of the kids who were starting <laughs> out. So, you know, I'm I'm being facetious, but you know, so I had to persevere, persevere through through all of that self doubt, which is so common. I want to add a couple of things sure. um, because Lisa had worked professionally for all those years. I was impressed with that, even though it was she wasn't a professional illustrator, but she had worked in a professional environment, so she knew how to work with well with play well with others and meet deadlines and so forth. And that was a, a, also let's throw that into the mix. Too, um, and also that I I do like. Uh, it's very rare I take on an artist in their twenties. It happens, but it's really rare because the art and the person needs maturity. So, Lisa, unbeknownst to her, her her age was a plus. <laughs> now she knows. <laughs> talk <laughs> we did, um, but I do want to talk about being scared. I'm scared a lot of the time you know i mean i'm i'm always getting myself deeper into more risk taking and change and new things and you know they say if you're not scared you're not what is it not trying or not taking risks or something and and i think i think the the very nature of what we do is risky and requires so much guts more than most people 
have to do. You're putting your art out, which is a reflection of your being, and you're getting rejected or you're not getting work, and then you are getting work. It's very uh, a very kind of dramatic career. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that it's fine and it's normal and it's not that anyone out there is a wimp. If they're scared, it's like you're taking gigantic risks and it's natural to be fearful. But I'd like to ask both of you, how do you soothe yourself? You wake up in the morning, let's say you're anxious. How do you deal with that? What are your techniques? If Abby, if that's okay to ask. But I'm sincerely curious. Yeah, I mean... I I think, um, and I want to talk about this next, about social media and the role that that can play, too, in that comparison game. Um, Mm Because I think that plays, it it does play a big role for me. I feel like, actually, when I wake up in the morning is the time when I don't feel that doubt, when I feel refreshed and ready to go, and, like, the things about what I do that I love the most um, occur to me and motivate me. And so if I sort of get back to the fundamentals and just sew and design and, um, you know, get back into my studio and sort of forget about everything, then I remember what I love the most and can kind of go back to, you know, the roots of it all. And um, because I think what happens to me when I have that self-doubt is... um, is either getting rejected from something which happens and or also just sort of watching other people get opportunities that I'm not getting and feeling like, well, how come they didn't invite me? You know, so there's that feeling as well. And so if I can just turn all of that off and get back to doing what I love to do, I immediately feel motivated and, you know, happy again. So what about you, Lisa? Well, um, I'm probably more a more anxious person than most. And I think it's because I sort of live what Lola was talking about. Like I live outside my comfort zone, so I'm never quite very relaxed. <laughs> right, it probably right. lends itself to my career being um, pretty intense, but it also um, it also can feel nerve-wracking. And I do a variety of things to keep myself grounded. I'm like an avid um, like exerciser. So right after I get off this podcast, I'm going to go to spin class for an hour. Um, I, um, I swim several times a week and I like, that is, um, this way that I sort of get my endorphins going and make myself feel good and really stay in my body. Cause a lot of what we do is so cerebral. Like we're in our head all of the time, both in concepting what we're going to do and in comparing ourselves to other people. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that really helps me. I write every morning and, um, and, you know, I, I don't know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things that I do over the course of the day to keep myself grounded, but figuring out what those things are for you is so important. Yeah, it really is. Um, and so I, I did want to turn to social media cause I feel like social media has played a huge role in your rise as an artist, at least from the outside, just looking in, um, you know, you've written about your journey on a blog of some kind, almost continually. I mean, there's been some breaks in there, but, um, even though the blog has changed, you're always writing and sharing. Um, and you recently described yourself, Lisa, as, um, as living a somewhat public facing life. Um, so I wanted to know, like, what does a day on social media look like for you? 
Well, I try to make sure that I'm posting something on social media every day and that at least one of the times it has to do with what I'm making um, or something professionally related. I mean, I do intermix some of my personal life in there because I have realized that people who follow my work are also interested in the kind of person that I am. And, um, I am really judicious about what I share and don't share. And so, um, I can be this person who people see as a regular human being, but they also don't know everything about me. Um, <laughs> some things need to be left to the imagination. You will never see a picture of me on Instagram in the bathtub, uh, <laughs> my feet in the bathtub, for example. Um, anyway, I, I get up in the morning and every day I write a blog post. Occasionally I write it the night before, but I'm a pretty real time blogger. Um, I plan what I'm going to write about, um, over the, you know, sometimes on Sunday I'll sit down and say, okay, what am I going to write about this week? I have such a stockpile of artwork that if, if I don't have anything else to post, I'll just post a picture of something I've drawn or hand lettered recently. Um, but sometimes I write about other people's work that I admire. Sometimes I write stories about my, my life and who I am, um, and my relationship. Sometimes I write stories about, um, you know, the process of making work or this whole notion of, of self doubt or work life balance or other things that I struggle with. Um, so sometimes it's images, sometimes I write essays and I try to post every day. And then for me, Twitter and my Facebook fan page, which has, I think at this point, almost 50,000 followers, um, uh, are kind of portals to share that information. So the content sits on my blog, but I use Twitter and Facebook to share that content and then other people can share it. So, um, I don't use Twitter too much for having conversations with people more, more for sharing information. And then Instagram is sort of like my favorite happy go-to place. Um, I share pictures of my animals and little vignettes of my house, but I also share images of um, my work and my process and what I'm making in my studio. And then also when I'm trying to promote an event, for example, this morning I posted a picture that had some information about two, um, book events that I'm having in New York for art Inc in September. So, you know, like I'll use all of them in some way, um, to, to promote what I do. And, um, and then I try to retweet or repost a couple times during the day. Um, you know, it's, it's a, hard balance. You want to, um, you want people to follow you, um, and you want to have interesting content. Um, but you don't want to overshare. You also don't want to over post that people are getting tired of you. And so part of figuring out the right mix of social media for you is figuring out what platforms you like, how you want to use them, how are people responding and how often do you want to post so that people are getting just enough, but not too much. Um, and I feel like I seem to have found that formula for me that works for me. And I feel my following keeps growing, so I must be doing something right. Yeah. And the glimpses, um, on Instagram, I really feel like are so great because we get to see where you are that day and what you're working on, what your studio looks like. And I find them to be really inspiring. I really enjoy your Instagram feed. Um, so let's turn now to talking about books. Um, Lilla, your book, I Just Like mm-hmm. to Make Things, came out in February of 2013. I loved it. Uh, I ordered it immediately. Um, and uh, what stuck with me most um, a year later is the title of Chapter 1. 
um, which I'm sure you've heard from other people too. But the title of chapter one is People Buy Your Joy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just love that idea. So I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that phrase and what you think it might say. Yeah, that was kind of an aha moment. I, I was... You know, I'm always looking at my artist's work. I mean, literally every day, lots of pieces come in to me from email that they've created new or for a job. And and I think a lot about what pieces are successful, what artists are more successful, um, what kind of jobs, all that kind of thing. And, 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 and what's the secret? And there's all kinds of marketing secrets and this and that, but... The bottom line is the art is joyful. The art um, has passion and joy in the making. You can sense it on a primal or visceral level. You can tell that the artist really had a good time making the piece and was involved intimately with the piece and art making. And, And I would say that that's... Um, kind of the brand, Lilla Rogers Studio brand, too. Um, it's now much more common in the industry to have that kind of look. But it wasn't always like that. There were moody pieces out there. There were um, just a range of kinds of things. But uh, So how can you have joy and make it marketable while staying true to yourself and... Uh, feel like there's integrity with the work because there does for my studio the work has to have integrity it's not overly well you know commercial in the negative sense yeah um uh that actually is something i wanted to talk about as well which is um sort of this concept of selling out and um and what that does and doesn't mean so um let's first touch on uh on lisa's book and then we'll sort of delve into that so um lisa you've got a new book it comes out tomorrow actually which is um august 12th 2014 and it's called art inc the essential guide for building your career as an artist and i feel like maybe you've written now the the handbook that maybe you wanted back i don't know if that if you feel that way but to me when i read it i was like this seems like the handbook that back in 2005 or whatever might have been so incredibly helpful um because it takes the idea of being a starving artist and stands it on its head like here's how you can not be a starving artist, but actually be a thriving artist, um, and still stay true to what you, um, believe in. So, um, one of the standout points for me was how important it is for most artists, maybe not all artists, but for most to diversify their income. So what kinds of things can an artist do to secure a real living from their work? Well, Um, I sort of did this by default in the beginning. Um, and then I learned that lots of other artists, including people who made big portions of their income from things like fine art or illustration were still diversifying to a certain extent. And, um, and so it was a natural thing to talk about in the book because I think it's these days so common. Um, it used to be, um, and Lilla remembers these times, I'm sure, but it used to be that, um, you, you, in some ways you had to make a choice. You either had to be an illustrator or a fine artist. You couldn't be both. There were these like 
unwritten or maybe even written rules about, you know, you were either a commercial artist or you were a fine artist who made personal work and showed in galleries or whatever. And God forbid you were a crafter. Yeah. Well, exactly. (laughs) Um, and so there was these sort of like, uh, you know, you had to sort of identify yourself with one movement and stick with it. And there was, you know, I think first people who still live in the old school, like they still have those rules about things. And, um, and then people started breaking them. And, um, and, and, and we saw that people were breaking them because of the internet, people like Shepard Ferry, um, other, even graffiti artists were doing things like, you know, uh, spray painting murals, but also having shows in galleries and also licensing their work, um, to sell at target. So, um, there are these ways that even, you know, that people with big names were, were breaking the rules and that's always important, right? That the rules get broken by people who the world sees matter. Um, and then, and then the rest of us started breaking the rules too. And I think, especially for people like me who didn't go to art school and didn't, um, didn't grow up in the in the world of rules about what kind of artist you you can or can't be or what you know realms you can cross into or not. Um, I was like, well, I'm going to make up my own rules anyway. So I I have um, had shows at fairly prestigious galleries. I don't currently have gallery representation, but I still regularly do um, shows of my fine artwork. Um, and I also, um, do commercial work. My commercial work can often look quite different from my fine artwork. Um, but I get to do both. I also have an Etsy shop where I sell both original paintings and drawings and mostly archival prints of my work. Um, I do speaking, um, I teach like Lilla does, um, and all of these different things, I'm sure I'm leaving things out, but all of these different things contribute to me being able to do all of them. It's like without, uh, illustration, I wouldn't be able to afford to do fine art. And without fine art, I wouldn't be able to afford to do illustration because not one thing pays all of my bills. Now it might, if I lived in a different part of the country, but I live in the Bay area and things are expensive here. So by default, I have to make a certain income. So I work my butt off doing lots of different things. I also love all of them. I feel like if I only did commercial work, I would get bored if I didn't have the opportunity to do, um, to do my own personal work, um, to show or sell, um, I love having an Etsy shop. I love being able to share sort of less expensive versions of my work for people who want it. Um, so, and I love to teach. So like the, 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 keeps my life kind of fun and exciting in addition to contributing to, you know, an income. Um, you know, in the old days it used to be, you had to have, um, a gallery representation or you had to have an illustration agent in order to make it like you had to have somebody promoting your work. Um, and nowadays you can promote your own work and you can, um, promote it, promote all the different things that you do in relationship to each other. I do think it's important to have a brand that as an artist that, um, not in the sort of traditional brand sense, but like have a look and feel for your art that, ties it all together. If you're doing a lot of different things, um, people still need to know who you are and they need to understand what you're about. Lilla, do you feel like a lot of the artists that you work with do sort of a similar thing that Lisa describes, you know, and 
sort of pursuing multiple paths, um, whether it's teaching Mm -hmm. and obviously doing illustration, but um, doing fine art work, showing their fine art, and just sort of trying, you know, all different things in order to make it all come together for to earn a real living. I, it really varies. I think Lisa is probably one of the most entrepreneurial of my artists. I have artists that make their living exclusively with, through me, and I have some that um, additionally have an Etsy shop or maybe teach at a college. Um, but uh, what what you're hearing from Lisa is her passion for all her interests, her ability to be entrepreneurial, and I love having many eggs in many baskets for the creative person for two reasons. Number one, as Lisa says, it's really fun. Her her fine art informs her illustration, and her illustration informs her fine art. And what I love about um, illustration is that you've got deadlines, and you know you're being paid, and and you get like manuscripts or or briefs from clients, which is kind of a fun way to work. You know, uh, and and with fine art, you can do what whatever you like. So they both have real pluses, but it's also we're in a time. It's such an exciting time of opportunity like never before for creative people. So it, it's a great idea to be in, in different, um, have different income streams because you don't know. You might sell really well on Etsy or maybe Etsy's not so great, but, but you do well at the Renegade Fair or, you know, writing books seems to take off. It's a, it's kind of a great way to test the market and test what you're good at and test what people are buying and liking. So I think it's great. It's, it's, um, it's all really personal too. Some, as I said, Lisa is probably the most entrepreneurial. She's a Capricorn like me (laughs) and we like business and ideas and new things and building. I was going to add to that. I talk about that in art Inc that like not every income stream is going to work for you and you have to find the ones that work for you. You may try one and realize later that it's not, it doesn't feel right to you. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is this idea of making sure whatever you do, whatever you spend your time on is aligned with your values and your core aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So whether you're an illustrator um, doing commercial work or a fine artist who does commissions. It has to feel good every day. You can't feel like you're selling out. Um, in order to be happy as an artist and to thrive as an artist, it's important to feel good. Um, and so, you know, choosing those income streams that that are really, like, that you get out of the bed in the morning and you feel really good about is super important and experimenting with all of them. You know, there are people who make 100% of their income doing editorial illustration, not just illustration, but, like, one kind of illustration. Mm -hmm. And that's their whole life is, you know, making illustrations for, say, the New York Times. Um, And then there are other people who do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and that's how they're happiest. And figuring out what's your sweet spot, you know, what do you like to do is part of the beginning phase of being an artist. Um, you know, and it's an exciting time. And I, I think too, that uh, those that are listening, that takes time. You evolve your style. Um, most people start with their portfolios, a variety of maybe media and styles 
and and they wonder, can I show? I get this asked a lot. Can I show a variety of styles on my web portfolio? And if that's what you have to start, you have to start there. And over time, it's like natural selection or something. You see that more and more people are buying a certain thing or you're happiest doing a certain thing, and you keep making more and more of that. And it naturally evolves. I also find very often that the styles come together and the media, like everything, they may be disparate parts in the beginning. You've got one thing that's sort of, more um, bright colored and others more edgy. Maybe one is pen and ink and others digital. But over time, maybe you do the things in pen and ink and scan them in and then work digitally and you use the bright colors, but then you also use the more muted edgy colors. It all comes together to make a stronger piece. So it's not just a one-trick pony look, but it's, it's richer and more uniquely you. And that's kind of the process of finding your style and then staying with it, um, and and then, yeah. So that's how that. Yeah, of- and I love in your book, Lila. There's a part where you mention um, that you know you should try to enjoy all of those stages. That um, being a beginner is exciting, and you can enjoy being a beginner, um, and not feel like you have to just rush through to get to the part where you're successful, or you know something like that. Where you can you can sort of sit in each of those stages and, and mm-hmm. experiment and um, and be happy where you are. You it's know? really true. And when you're a beginner, you're so excited and motivated and scared. But, and also when I take an artist on, they're so excited, the honeymoon phase, everybody loves everybody, and and we continue to love everybody, but it's also like, we call them with their first jobs, and they're so, you know, it's really a great time, and, you know, I know people want to be really established and really famous, but when you get really established and really famous, it's a different feeling, it's real, it's more comfortable, which is nice, but it's not that same, um, excitement. So while it's hard to be a beginner because you don't know if you're going to be successful, are you going to make it? Um, and that is uncomfortable, but do enjoy those early stages of like getting that first job. And, you know, when I, I got the New York magazine job, I called my mom and dad, mom, get dad on the line, you know, and, and there's a real excitement there. That's, that's precious. So I just want to reinforce that. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important. And um, a great segue to, um, to us um, going ahead and diving into our recommendation lists. Um, so uh, I've asked you both to pull together some things that you are loving right now and would recommend to you know a creative friend. And so, Lisa, we're going to start with you. And you wanted to recommend the five minute journal. And is, I wondered if this is when you said you did writing every morning, if this was part of that. Yes, it is. Um, so my wife and I, um, were walking through paper source actually, which is an awesome store by the way. Um, recently at, well, not well earlier this summer. So it's been a while. And, um, she picked up this five, this thing called the five minute journal. It's this beautiful sort of linen covered thick journal. And she started looking at it and she brought it over to me and she said, I want to get one of these. This looks really cool. And so basically what it is, it's a journal for people who can't ever keep up with the morning journaling. Um, 
it asks very specific questions. And the whole beginning of it, the authors explain why these specific questions are important ones to focus on every day. Um, but basically, every day you write three, three things you're grateful for, three things that would make today great, and three day or one daily affirmation. Um, so they're sort of um, ways to sort of get yourself in this positive mindset about your day. And you do that every morning. And then every night, you write three amazing things that happened today. And believe me, sometimes that is hard. <laughs> and how could I have made today better? Which actually, in the last few days, I've been saying, today was great. Nothing, I wouldn't have changed anything. Um, so we have been religious about using this journal. And I think part of the reason it's working is that um, is that we do it together and then we sort of share together um, what we've been writing. And um, I love it because it's this new morning ritual for me. New, it, Not as new as it was in the beginning, but still feels relatively exciting. I really like focusing on like making my mind shift to um, having positive intentions and thinking about the things that I'm grateful for and not the things I'm stressed out about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really like closing out the day with thinking about, you know, even if you, if it feels like searching for a needle in a haystack, like finding that <laughs> one, two or three things that were positive about my day, even if I had a really bad day. So, um, so that's just like, I can't advocate enough for this journal. It's great. And it's just called the five minute journal. In fact, you can find it on five minute journal com or something like that. Yeah. I'm going to get that Lisa. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's it great. Yeah. Cause I feel like sometimes at the end of the day, my only written record of my day is my to-do list, exactly. <laughs> you know, and that's just a sort of a stressful written record of the day. It's like, here's, you know, 15 more things that I didn't get done that I need to get mm-hmm. done. So this is a way to turn that on its head, which I think is terrific. Um, and also, thing you know, recording things is really important. And what you record, you can measure and you can go back and look at. Um, so I just started using um, my Fitness Pal, which is a way of recording what you eat. And I feel like it has that same sort of idea. Like, it's good to record things and keep track of them um, in your life instead of just letting them go by, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, So, Lily, you want to talk about some magazines, and the first one is Uppercase, which I love. Mm -hmm. Well, so I put down Uppercase and Flow magazine because they're just so beautiful and wonderful, and it's really important to stay inspired and feed the beast of the visual creative person, you know, you, you can't just produce, you'll, you'll get to a point in your career when you're just producing, 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 and that's awesome, but you need to sort of, um, kind of like stocking a lake with fish, I'm, is an image coming to me, just keep putting in visual, you know, being turned on, stimulated, so those are two magazines I love for that, and it's also great to support them um, because they're good magazines and they're independently owned. Yeah, um, I, I accidentally bought a copy of Flow Magazine. Flow Magazine is a Dutch magazine, and I was in New York, and I was at this international magazine shop uh, randomly, and I picked it up. So this was like a fifth anniversary edition that they did, and it's all papers. 
Um, it's got stickers and punch outs and that kind of thing in it as well, but it is an amazing sort of uh, special edition that they did. Um, and it, you can just cut out all of these different papers, so like scrapbooking papers basically, and use them in whatever project you want to use them in. Um, and it's like, I don't even want to touch it because it's so gorgeous. I just like look <laughs> through all of it. Um, but I don't know what a typical issue is like. This is not a typical issue. It doesn't really have any text in it. It's just papers. So what's in flow normally? It's a normal magazine. I, I haven't figured out some... Sometimes the magazine is in Dutch, and sometimes I get an English version. Um, and but it's like a regular magazine with articles and interviews with artists and cool vintage stuff and beautiful artwork. They commission with us a lot, and our artists are in there often or on the cover. And it's just it's it's like uppercase, but it's got um, a little bit of a Dutch feel. Yeah, I've been on the cover uh, once and been in probably six issues. So. Nice. Yeah. yeah, very. They love Lilla's, um, mm-hmm. Lilla, the aesthetic of Lilla's artists. Mm-hmm. That's super. And you know, like uppercase. I mean, I I subscribed to uppercase for a year, and I kept every issue because you don't. These aren't magazines you recycle. These are magazines that you keep in order on your shelf and just pull out and look at for visual inspiration. Um, and uppercase even smells good. I love that magazine. <laughs> it's such a great... I think it's that ink. Yeah. I don't know what I, there's a specific smell that that magazine has that I love. Um, all right. So Lisa, you wanted to talk about, um, koi brush pens. Yeah. So I have developed this great relationship with Sakura, which is this Japanese pen company. Um, they, um, emailed me once and were like, we love your work. We've, we've heard you mention that you use Microns, which is the, like the main pen that I use. And that's one of their biggest sort of, uh, brands. Um, and, uh, we've, you know, so basically I'm about to be a featured artist on their site. They send me free stuff constantly. So one of the things they, I know I'm so lucky. Um, so recently they sent me a pack, a huge package of some of their new products. And there are these uh, maybe some of the products weren't new, but they had these brush pens, which are basically um, colored felt tip pens. Um, and I always draw in black and white and then either paint. If I'm doing something that's going to be original, I use gouache or watercolor or I paint digitally. Um, or I'm sorry, I color digitally once I've scanned the drawing. And I never use colored pens. And so I thought, well, they sent me these. I'm going to give them a try in my sketchbook. And I fell in love with them. They're like almost, they're, the colors are really delicious. And, um, and they, they go on the page really nicely. And so I've been using them a lot, um, in my sketchbook work and want to play around with them a lot more. Um, and, uh, they're one of Koi is sort of like an imprint of the bigger, you know, Sakura company. Um, and they're kind of fat and have like, not fat tips. They're they're great. Okay. So and the tip is sort of like a brush. So if you yes, exactly. That's why they're called brush. Right. Pens. So if you, they're like pressure sensitive, so that yep. the line will be thicker if you press harder. Yep. Right. Cool. And yeah, lucky you getting them for free because they aren't. To- they are not cheap. A twenty four pack is sixty dollars. Yeah. Um, but I was tempted by the six pack of grays. That's only fifteen dollars, and that sounds like it would be really cool to play with. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, 
All right, and Lily, you wanted to talk about Modo, uh, and I watched a little video on their website. So this is software for 3D printers, which is so cool. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I think my next thing is messing around with 3D printing. I just think it's, it's really exciting, and it, and the technology is getting better and better, and it's getting cheaper, and um, I, I want to get my hands on it. That's all. It's just, you know, I, li- I just like to make stuff, so totally. it'll be fun. Yeah, to be able to make things for jewelry would be amazing, like of flower cabochons and odd things, and just it would be fun. Yeah, it's ama- it blows my mind that you can print something out in plastic in three dimensions that you draw on the screen. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. But, you know, what? Where that's where we're headed. You know, it's going to be interesting to see what, uh, you know, 20 years from now, what all of that looks like. Five. Five, yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, less. It's, yeah, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a very big thing. And I always say that artists, art flows to the technology or the, or commerce. So we are always in a good position because you need the creatives to have the art to, to put on the products or, to be used, so it, I think it's 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 all good. It's all good for artists. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely it is. Um, all right, and Lisa, you got our last pick, uh, which is Cal Patch's pattern drafting class on Creative Bug, and you also have some very popular classes on Creative Bug yourself. Um, and I had Cal Patch on the podcast not long ago, and um, she's a pretty special person. So tell us about this class. Yeah, no, I love Creative Bug, and I'm actually taping uh, two more classes with them next week. Oh, congratulations. Um, So I, if you read my blog, you know that um, this year I'm trying to not buy any new clothes. I'm either buying vintage or I'm making my own. Easier said than done. Not the buying vintage. I could go vintage shopping all day long. (laughs) Um, But the selling your own clothes only because, for me, it's an enjoyable process. It's just that I'm such a, I'm so busy professionally that I have, very little downtime to do my own sort of fun hobbies. Um, so I managed, I've managed to make four things already this year. And, um, so when Cal launched this class a couple of months ago, um, I was really interested in taking it. So basically, um, Cal's premise is like that you can make your own clothes to fit your body, that when you buy a pattern to sew something, um, it isn't designed for you. It might, you might get lucky and it might fit, or you might know how to make adjustments to it, but you can actually make patterns to make your own skirts and dresses. Um, and so she shows you how to do that on this, um, class. And it's actually like four parts and takes several days to sort of watch and, and take in. Um, she also shows you if you have an article of clothing that you really like and you want to replicate it, how to make a pattern to make something that's like something you bought or already own. Um, and it's just a wonderful class. She's got a very sort of calm um, demeanor and very methodical way of teaching, and she has a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could sort of watch her all day long, and I really loved this class. Now, I did start making a skirt by drafting my own pattern, which is sitting halfway done in my studio, admittedly. Um, so I haven't actually finished anything from the class, but if you're really into sewing and you want to learn how to make your own clothes of your own design, this is a great place to start this class. And Creative Bug is great. I think it's like nine ninety nine a month to subscribe. And they have like hundreds of craft and art classes 
um, on their site. Yeah, it's so cool. Um, and you're right, Cal is, uh, there's something just so sort of calm and approachable about the way that she uh, talks about sewing and about uh, sewing clothes. It, you know, it, it just makes it so it's open to everyone, even if, um, you know, you didn't grow up sewing all your own clothes or being That's taught by your mom how to do that or whatever. You can jump in and, and do it too, which I love. I love that approach. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Lisa Congdon and Lula Rogers, it's been so great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. Thank you. It was really fun. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I was so excited to be on here with Lola too. <laughs> you too, Lisa. Yay. Um, so you can get Lisa's new book, Art Inc., starting tomorrow on Amazon and in your local bookstore where you'll also find Lola's book, I Just Like to Make Things. And you can check out Lola's online classes and global talent search on her site, lolarogers.com, and Lisa on her site, lisacongdon.com. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and see you next time.